Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Today, folks, is a very, very special day for us here at Night Fright. Today is April 4th. Today is the anniversary of the day Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968. Today, folks, you know, we live in a world where a black man has been in the White House, but with distinct difference from all black people before him in the White House. Instead of a person of service, Barack Obama occupied the most powerful position in the world, the President of the United States. But make no mistake, folks, took a lot of red for black to be in the White House. I want to turn to my favorite song from the band U2, Pride in the Name of Love. Its lyrics, early morn, April 4, shot rings out in the Memphis sky, free at last. They took your life. They could not take your pride. Those, of course, are the lyrics to the U2's famous song, Pride, in the Name of Love. A quick explanation of the lyrics. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was shot and killed in Memphis on April 4th in 1968. His name is King, and therefore, poetically, his followers could be considered his pride, as that is what lions in a group are referred to. But what is most important is the line from the song that says, they could not take your pride. They didn't stop the civil rights movement with the murder of Dr. King. The civil rights movement was bigger than any one single person. It was just, it was right, and its time was nigh. Our guests tonight, Larry Hancock and Stuart Wexler, have written what many feel is the definitive book about the King assassination. It is titled, The Awful Grace of God, Religious Terrorism, White Supremacy, and the Unsolved Murder of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Tonight, we will examine the conspiracy to kill Dr. King, who set up the plot, who was behind it, and if James Earl Ray was indeed the lone nut assassin acting on a whim, just like they try to tell us that both Lee Harvey Oswald was and of JFK and Sirhan Sirhan was of Bobby, or is there more to the story than we've been led to believe? Let's find out, shall we? Get in your most comfy chair, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. Sit down, relax, enjoy this very special remembrance of Dr. Martin Luther King with us tonight. Larry Hancock, of course, has been here many times after service in the Air Force and a career in computer communications. Larry Hancock had pursued his lifelong interest in history, researching and writing a number of books dealing with the assassinations of the 1960s and covert and deniable warfare into the 21st century. His most recent book, now in print, is Surprise Attack, an exploration of the American security response to attacks from Pearl Harbor through to 9-11 and Benghazi. Stuart Wexler also frequents the joint. <laughs> He's a regular guest on Night Fright. He's a researcher on political violence in modern America and has been featured in his books America at which has been featured in his books America's Secret Jihad and in the book of course the one we're looking at tonight The Awful Grace of God 
co-authored, of course, with Larry Hancock. Wexler has expanded on his research and appearances on NPR with Leonard Lopat in the Washington Post, in Newsweek, and in the Daily Beast, among other media outlets. It's my great pleasure to welcome back to Night Fright both Larry Hancock and Stuart Wexler. Thank you guys for joining me tonight on this very special eve where we remember Dr. Martin Luther King. Thank you for having us on. Mike. Absolutely. Larry, can we begin with you? For those that are unfamiliar with what happened, what took place April 4, 1968 at the Lorraine Motel, could you give a brief synopsis of what happened that night? I can. That night, it's important to remember that Dr. King had been in Memphis recently a few weeks before his his reason for being there was to lead demonstrations in support of a sanitation worker strike. Uh, he had been there previously. The march had become violent. Uh, that was very difficult for Dr. King, totally against his approach to civil rights, and actually a problem as he was in the process of organizing a massive peaceful march for that spring in Washington, D.C. So essentially he had returned to Memphis dedicated to organizing a peaceful march and protest showing that it could be done. He had spent the last day, day and a half meeting with people, trying to ensure that all parties were in line with that, that it would be peaceful. The, the evening before he had made a very, what became a very famous speech at a, a church in Memphis, um, committing himself to the his endeavor, regardless of what might happen to him, he knew he was at risk. He'd been threatened uh, once again on the flight up to Memphis by a, a bomb threat. But that evening, he was just about to relax and go to the home of one of his friends, uh, a local minister that he knew well for a dinner and, and some social time getting ready for the big day that was to follow. And uh, just at the time of of the assassination, he had been out on the back in the balcony of the Lorraine Motel, talking to his drivers, get, get ready to go, and gone back in to uh, to get his jacket, and had just come back out on the porch. Where did the shot emanate from, Larry? I just want to give the folks an idea of you know the whole scenario, what the official story is, and then we'll go into your research, of course, with Stu's. Certainly. Well, there is no doubt that the the shot came from across the street. Uh, there were a series of buildings across a, a local highway that was in between the Lorraine Motel and, and a, a series of buildings, including a rooming house, that were across the street. And I don't think there's any doubt that the, shoot, the shot came from a moderate distance uh, with a fairly high-powered rifle from across the street. It was not a close range shot. It was it was at some distance, not long distance, but a moderate distance. And it it came from across the street. The argument, of course, is exactly where it came from across the street. Officially it came from a a bathroom which James Earl Ray was occupying at the time. Uh and that's where the the kill shot was fired from. And that's that's where the story begins to diverge. Okay, I just want to jump to Stu just for a second. Stu, you know, one of the ultimate questions that people always ask me, because Night Fright covers all four of the assassinations that took place in the 60s, 
Uh, you know, there's JFK first, 1963, Malcolm X, Dr. King, 68, and then Bobby, of course, in June, only two, two uh, months later in 1968. Were you able to ascertain if there's a single thread, because I know you're an expert in all of these as well, these assassinations. Was there a single thread weaving its way through all these assassinations? I guess what I'm asking, was this just yet another one of the deep state, for lack of a better term, taking out somebody that was threatening them? Um, um, I think Larry and I, you know, our basic argument would be is if, if the deep state had anything to do with something like this, we haven't, the, the direct evidence is not there. Um, it's certainly, there's certain are as many questions about, say, the King assassination in our minds uh, and its relationship to, say, covert government operations as there is with the JFK assassination, where I think both Larry and I think at least was a, at the, at the very least was in JFK's situation, was a byproduct of covert operations. In this situation, the, 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 the sort of where the plot emanated from, we came to ultimately conclude was focused almost entirely with white supremacists and a specific ugly strain of white supremacy that was looking to start a race war. And killing Martin Luther King was their avenue to create that race war. So there was no covering up of the autopsy that we see in the JFK assassination, of covering up multiple bullets that we see in the Bobby Kennedy assassination or anything along those lines? Uh, I mean, there's certainly questions about physical evidence in the Martin Luther King assassination, but most of it is simply a matter of, of, of just simply having inconclusive results. So you have ballistics, and you can't be certain that it traces to the rifle that was found in front of the Canopy Amusement Store, which we'll probably get into later, in a, in a green blanket. Whereas with you know, JFK assassination, we could probably do five episodes about odd, oddities within the, with the physical evidence um, and almost any piece of physical evidence. So I, I think it's a different kind of ball game with the King assassination as opposed to the Kennedy assassination. And I would say the same with, with, with the RFK assassination, not to get too much off field here, but the evidence for police cover-up there and cover-up of evidence in the Bobby Kennedy assassination is far more definitive in my mind than even in JFK. So, uh, again, I think both Kennedy brothers, their assassinations have a different feel for them, especially on the issue of evidence, than with the Martin Luther King assassination. There is some thought with Bobby that there might be a connection to the same kind of white supremacists. That's actually, for lack of a better, you know, not to get too far off field here, but sort of what got Larry and I originally into and eventually diverted us into the King assassination. Uh, again, it's not clear or compelling yet. So uh, for now, I would see the King assassination as something okay. different from the other two. I want to jump back to Larry. Larry, what was Dr. King threatening on a global scale and on a domestic scale? What was he um, 
what was he actually going after that made him such a terrifying character that, of course, white supremacists or somebody along those natures would have to get rid of him? Well, uh, two things. I think the two things that he had been most recently associated with, other, other than civil rights, I mean, fundamentally, the whole concept of civil rights and equality were a threat to many institutions, to many groups, and and sometimes we tend to leave that behind because we're at a distance from us now. But it was still as much a threat to business as usual in the South and in certain states in the North as it ever had been. And it was a, it was still a flashpoint. So that civil rights was not settled in 1968. Uh, it was still a dangerous effort for all involved, and there were still people being injured and dying over civil rights. But more recently, Dr. King had turned to first the Vietnam War, which he had focused on for a couple of years. And in 1968, however, he was turning his attention away from the war a good deal and focusing on economic equality. And as you can imagine, the combination of Civil rights and economic equality troubled a lot of institutions as well. So one of the problems dealing with the King assassination is somewhat like dealing with the Kennedy assassination. If you start from simply the premise of who was King a threat to, who would like to see King go away, you come up with a plethora of answers. Uh, Stu and I approached it a little bit differently because in those situations you just you just make a list and you get befuddled. Um, we took it a different direction in looking at the opportunity that Dr. King and his a violent murder of Dr. King would represent. When you look at it that way, it really profited only one group. There was a series of, of prior assassination attempts against King, in the same sense that was a series of prior assassination attempts towards JFK. Who were behind those assassination attempts, Stu? Well, we actually, that was one of the big undertakings that Larry and I looked into. And what we found was every serious attempt, so every attempt where King was probably lucky to have actually survived, and we could get into how often he, he was just sheerly lucky to get out of the situation. In every serious attempt, it connected to white supremacists. And then we looked a little bit deeper and, and tried to connect. Is, is there anything that links these white supremacists up? Because the, the common thought, and it's not un, inaccurate, is that many of these groups were, were you know, in competition with each other for members, for money, for donations, etc. And that's not a wholly inaccurate picture, but what we found was that the particular people who were going after King, actually and especially by 67, 68, were united by what was a burgeoning ideological and really theological approach to white supremacy known as Christian identity. And so in reality, if you if you go through it, almost every attempt on his life was someone who was one to two steps removed from the Christian identity movement, the Church of Jesus Christ Christian out of California, 
a radically anti-Semitic and anti-black group that saw a race war as literally the end times, the Christian Armageddon. They had completely rewritten the Bible in a way, or reinterpreted the Bible in a way to justify violent anti-Semitism and violent racism. And those are the people who almost, to a plot, tried to kill King from as late as 1958 or as early as 1958 up until 1968 when the actual murder is consummated. One thinks right away of Charles Manson trying to bring around a race riot, some kind of apocalyptic race riot. Larry, can you tell us one of those attempts on Dr. King's life that most folks may not be familiar with, one that was thwarted? There, there were, well, there are two. They actually both occurred in Mississippi, uh, which is where was the headquarters of this group, that clan group that Stu was talking about. In one instance, uh, Dr. Keem was coming into the state for a round of speaking tours uh, following the opening of, of education and the legislation on desegregating schools. And uh, Sam Powers and the White Knights of Ku Klux Klan actually laid out a very sophisticated plot which involved uh, entrapping King's car on a bridge. The first part was to blow the bridge up, he and his, his cars to blow them up, but just to ensure the plot worked, they had snipers in place to finish everyone off in case the explosions didn't kill them. That was simply frustrated because Dr. King, who was notorious for changing his plans at the last moment, didn't go that way that night. Uh, another instance in the same state, they had set up another killing ground by very sensationally murdering a black man. Uh, Dr. King came to the state. That was one of their common themes. They would commit a sensational crime to lure Dr. King into a killing field uh, where they had control, and uh, he came into state and, again, changed his plans at the last minute. And people... People don't know. Those events get virtually no coverage outside of really deep civil rights histories and, and crime files. Yeah, I, you know, I was unaware of them until you mentioned them right now. Now, Stu, can you set up a little bit about the biography of James Earl Ray for us? Just so folks know. Now, James Earl Ray, according to the official version, took the single shot that killed Dr. Martin Luther King on April 4th, 1968, Lorraine Motel. He was situated, as Larry mentioned before, across from the Lorraine Motel in a rooming house, in the rooming house bathroom. Can you tell us what prompted him to take this quest on? Was he being coerced? Was he being blackmailed? Was the money the big factor for him? Well, Larry and I, and we, we build off of comments made, for instance, by his brothers, what, what made Ray tick was money. Now, it would be inaccurate to call him a petty criminal, but he, he wasn't Al Capone either. He was somewhere in between for much of his life. But he would commit armed robberies uh, and, and similar types of crimes. And what was constantly motivating him and motivates a lot of criminals and a lot of people in life in general was getting a big score. And so what Larry and I look into is 
there's these bounty offers that are circulating on Martin Luther King's life. And they were circulating sometimes in, in vague terms in a lot of American federal prisons. And, you know, two of the ones we've talked about, we, one, of, one of the biggest ones is, is Leavenworth. But the one, but we also find evidence of uh, more than one prisoner not only saying that plots were circulating, bounty offers were circulating in Missouri State Penitentiary, which is where Ray had been before he escaped in April of 1967, but that Ray had actually spoken to these particular plots. In other words, he spoke about them talked about how they interested him. Now, we don't believe that Ray had, that these were the driving force for Ray in the immediate aftermath of his escape. He was hoping to get out of North America and escape the country. But at some point, likely when he got to Canada, uh, those plots became a lot, those bounties became a lot more tantalizing to him when he mistakenly determined that he was going to have a much more difficult time getting out of North America. And so then he mysteriously heads back into the United States, even though he's a fugitive. Uh, he's going to claim that he's being played like a, like a fiddle by a mysterious figure by the name of Raul. But what Larry and I conclude is, is if Raul existed, he's likely a composite that it may very well be of both the criminal and racist elements that had been in Canada as well as in the United States, and that what Ray was doing from the summer of 1967 onward was trying to get a piece of this bounty that he had first been exposed to when he was in Missouri State Penitentiary, and then later became much more tantalizing to him when he realized that he might not be able to easily extricate himself out of the United States after he escaped from prison in April of 1967. Okay, let's pick it up there. I want to go back to Larry. Larry, the shot rings out. Dr. King falls backwards on, on the railing, still with his foot on the railing. People attend to him. What happens next for James Earl Ray, presuming that he is indeed the assassin? How does he react? Um, actually, he reacts like James Earl Ray did in many of his crimes. As, as Stu has described, he's a, he's a career criminal, armed, armed robberies, uh, thefts, burglaries. And Ray had conducted a number of robberies in which he planned them reasonably well. And when he got to the execution and escape, everything just kind of fell apart with him. He was he's very good from escaping prisons. He was very bad from escaping from his actual crimes. So what happens immediately following the shooting, which, again, to set the stage, apparently Ray had checked in to the, uh, to the motel, had taken a lot of his personal effects upstairs as if he were going to stay overnight, uh, and had also taken the rifle upstairs. And he was monitoring, officially, uh, the motel across the street. He had a pair of binoculars and... Supposedly, after taking the shot, which only he only had a clear shot from the bathroom down the hall from his room, and he had to stand in a bath bathtub to take that shot, he immediately rushed back to his room, threw the gun into a bundle with some of his other stuff into a, a to a a blanket, 
and left some things in the room, but bundled up the other things, ran down the, the stairs, ran out onto the front street, uh, headed towards his car, then for some reason decided that he needed, whether he had thought about it for a moment and decided it was more incriminating to be caught with the weapon than it was to leave it somewhere. Uh, he had registered under an alias, by the way, and it always operated under aliases. So it's possible that he may have suddenly realized that he'd have, have a better escape that if he didn't actually have the rifle in his car. But in any event, he dumped the bundle in front of a, the doorway of a building next door to the motel, got in his car, and uh, essentially sped out of uh, Memphis and made his way in a, a pretty circuitous way to Atlanta. Uh, and the story gets interesting in Atlanta, but the, uh, the alarm was out pretty frequently, uh, pretty quickly, so he barely got out of town. And one interesting thing that did occur was that during the course of escape, there were a series of CB radio broadcasts that actually directed police in the opposite direction from the route that Ray was taking during his escape. How much that helped in the escape is unclear, but it certainly added a great deal of chaos and confusion to that period of time. Larry, do you feel that those CB radio broadcasts, was that part of a conspiracy to absolutely head people in the opposite direction than where Ray was headed? We actually, I think we actually came to the conclusion, this is where you have to, it's unclear what what is clear is that the, the police came up with an explanation that involved a young person doing the whole thing as a spur of the moment hoax just to have fun with it. Uh, that's an extremely weak, weak explanation uh, and, and really doesn't fly. Uh, they couldn't come up with a good explanation. And, and the problem at that point in time would be, well, if it wasn't just a spontaneous hoax, then somebody, and, and by the way, this didn't happen immediately. It took some time for these radio broadcasts to occur, so it doesn't, it wasn't really synchronized to the shooting. It's almost like an after-the-fact event, and Stu and I came to speculate that this was, that what Ray had done, even if he had taken the shot, if somebody else, it, the shooting did not occur when it was supposed to, and it at that point in time, whatever plot was in play, and we think it was actually for the next day during the march, um, began to unravel. Ray's behavior began to unravel. In fact, it un unraveled so badly that it turned out he wasn't able to collect any of the money he was anticipating and had to flee the country by bus, which not your preferred method usually. Um, so... Yes, we do feel that it indicates that there were other people involved, but it doesn't indicate that there was a tightly laid out and controlled conspiracy, and it happened more as an artifact than as part of a plan. I want to go back to Stu now, and Stu, we know that he fled the United States to Canada. Now, in those days, folks, pre-9-11, this is brand new post-9-11, and it's something I'm having a problem adjusting to. You didn't need a passport to go across the border between the United States and Canada. As a matter of fact, if they actually stopped you to ask you where you were going, it was a rare occasion. It was like almost going from state to state. And I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. I mean, I remember living in Montreal, going down to Plattsburgh, 
to watch a, a drive-in and they would just wave you through car after car after car. Uh, free and open border, absolutely, without question. So for him to go from the United States to Canada is not a big deal. However, when he is arrested overseas, Stu, he has in his possession a Canadian passport. Now, once again, this isn't something you just go into a five-and-dime store and buy for a couple of bucks. There has to be some kind of support system behind you, which leads me to believe he was being supported in some kind of conspiracy. Can we talk about that a little bit, Stu? Well, you know, what's interesting is the, the BBC, several years ago, managed to obtain, a guy named John Nickel managed to obtain um, some of the RCMP files to investigate Ray's comings and goings within Canada that had never been released before. And what he had, what the, one of the big things that the reporter had found was that um, when Ray was in Canada, just like when he was in the United States, he kept maps. And he would make very interesting circles on the maps. So we could talk about, for instance, the circles on the maps in Atlanta. But the, the circles on the maps in Canada, one of the circles happened to be on a criminal who was sort of in the underworld of the of the sort of, I don't want to say the Canadian mafia, but for lack of a better term, that would probably be what we would say. And Oh, no, we have guys, too. No worries. And the KKK, <laughs> you, know, you know, we get Coke, Pepsi, everything. Everything is here, folks. Just like you have there, we have all our crazies, too. And what it turns out is this guy actually had a reputation for doing things like getting uh, fake documentation. And this would have been something that Ray would have been cued into because when they went to Missouri State Penitentiary, they even top of this was before he was even captured. The there was a, a criminal in in MSP who said, "Yeah, you know, if, if if Ray paid any attention to anybody in here, he would know that the, the the pipeline to get sort of the kinds of identifications and materials you need to get out of North America." it would come in Canada in places like Toronto. And so this sort of hooks into the sort of second element to our sort of our argument, our thesis about what happened with Dr. King, which is it's kind of a, a hybrid theory where the Ku Klux Klan and this white supremacist network that we talk about actually outsourced the plot to professional criminals who had reputations for things like contract killings. Not mafia as in Sicilian mafia, mafia as what we call the Dixie Mafia, which is a different beast. It's a, a loose-knit group of sort of almost desperados, modern desperados, who would form gangs to commit really high-valued crimes those 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 high money crimes could include contract killings, and that we actually that's one of the big leads that we follow through the course of the book and in our investigations, which is a plot that was offered to somebody or a bounty that was offered to somebody in Leavenworth via the it was via a criminal, but it was on behalf of the White Knights. The money was fronted by the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan of Mississippi. And it's our position that it's this kind of bounty offer that would have been 
something that at least the vague outlines of it would have been a, something that would have been available to somebody in Missouri State Penitentiary where Ray escaped from, and that Ray eventually finds his way back into, after a lot of different shenanigans, into the periphery of that plot. And what Larry was trying to argue before, and which we will admit, for lots of reasons, has to remain at a point of educated speculation, is that Ray is recruited to essentially be a, a scout. He's, he's there to try and track King's movements. But this, according to our own, the bounty offer that was in Leavenworth, didn't carry as much money value to the person who took up that role. So that what Ray literally and figuratively does, and again, the, the evidence is, is far from conclusive, but it explains a lot. What Larry was saying before is what he literally and figuratively did was jump the gun in hopes of collecting the full bounty. And this catches the conspirators who thought they'd have a different shooter under different circumstances perhaps the next day completely off guard. Hence the need 20 to 30 minutes later to run a diversion. But if you're going to frame Ray, you wouldn't leave the police away from where he's going. You'd lead him to where he's going. You wouldn't use a different rifle. You'd use the rifle he got his fingerprints on. So the, 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 the argument is, is that this is some of these folks have to scramble because even though Ray is responding to their bounty offer, he's not doing it on the terms that they had planned. Larry, James Earl Ray ends up being arrested. He's, he's ushered back to the United States. There's a trial. What was the outcome of that trial? Um, one thing, though, Brent, if I could, just before I get quite there, just to elaborate please, a little on your please. last question. Yes, sir. It's important to remember that James Earl Ray went to Canada twice after his escape from prison. He also went to Mexico. There's a clear pattern of him trying to get out of North America to someplace in Africa has no res no way to get him back. But he had been in Canada before. He had spent some time in Canada before and actually gone to the effort of trying to obtain a Canadian citizen as a sponsor to get his passport documents. Yeah, I should um, mention, folks, this took place in Montreal in 19 Expo year, 1967. And uh, he, that's where Ray claims in a, in a club in Montreal and... 121 Rue de la Commerce East, which I've been to. I've taken pictures of it. It's no longer a club, by the way. That's where he claims where he met Raoul, and Raoul was this mysterious figure who was supposed to have offered him the bounty and set him up and all these kinds of things. Sorry to interrupt you, Larry. And then he went further north. There was a... a, a about 100 miles outside of Montreal, north of Montreal, there was a beautiful, beautiful resort there uh, called the Grey Rocks. And that's also where he met this woman um, who was he was trying to uh, coerce to give him a Canadian citizenship. Sorry to interrupt you, Larry. Oh, and, and, but I think that's important because what it does is really reflects is that and when Ray found out that she was actually a Canadian government employee, um, he dropped the whole plan, went back to the United States. But the second time he was in Canada after the assassination, he did something different. He actually went to a travel agency, found out that he did not need a sponsor, and found out what was going to be required was much simpler and was simply 
false identification, as Stu was describing. So just to set the context, he had been in Canada twice. He had learned a lot more about what he needed to actually get out of Canada, uh, and all he really needed was money. And interesting thing is, when he was arrested, after he was arrested, one of the remarks he made of was that if he had just had the, just he had more money, he just had the kind of money he needed, no one would ever have caught him. He would have gone through London and gone on and disappeared. Uh, he just didn't have enough money, and, which gets back to the fact that Stu and I think he didn't collect the money he was expecting to collect in Atlanta. But to your question on the trial, Ray came to trial. That was a rather extended process. And actually, the trial was very unsatisfying to everybody concerned because Ray eventually pled guilty. He pled guilty, uh, but the prosecution was allowed to offer all, virtually all their evidence into court and because he was pleading guilty, it was all unchallenged. So as in many of these cases, um, as in the RFK case in Los Angeles uh, with no trial in Dallas, we are left with evidence that was never challenged in the normal uh, legal process where you get to throw questions at people and and do things like that to confirm the evidence. That evidence just went into the official court files, and that was it. And the judge accepted Ray's guilty plea. And then James Earl Ray asked to make one final statement and essentially said to the judge that he accepted his guilt, he was guilty, but he just wanted everyone to know that essentially all this talk about there having been no conspiracy and having him be acting on his own was not true. And then he sat back down. Well, he sat back down for a couple of days because I think probably within three days, and Stu can correct me, he wrote a letter to the judge saying he wanted another trial because he was taking back his guilty plea, which starts us on a, on a very circuitous legal challenge route from James Earl Ray that lasted for years. The JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brandon Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts for yours right now, nightfrightshow.com. Well, I want to stay on the trial realm. I want to jump actually 30 years after that, approximately 30 years, to Lloyd Jower's trial of 1998. And this is a trial, folks, that was set up by the King family primarily to find out if there was any truth to the fact that there was a conspiracy behind the uh, Dr. Martin Luther King assassination, but primarily they were looking to see if the FBI or government were involved. And this is Coretta Scott King's, Dr. King's wife's statement after the trial was finished. There is an abundant evidence of a major high-level conspiracy in the assassination of my husband, Martin Luther King Jr. The mafia, local, state, and federal government agencies were deeply involved in the assassination of my husband. The jury also affirmed overwhelming evidence that identified someone else, not James Earl Ray, as the shooter, 
and that Mr. Ray was set up to take the blame. However, a couple of years later, June 9th, 2000, Janet Reno, Attorney General at the time, releases a 150-page report that rejects those allegations and says that there was no conspiracy to assassinate King, including deriving, if you will, the findings of the Memphis Civil Court jury. There's a lot of controversy over this trial that took place. People are shouting and screaming, aha, now we have a, a guilty verdict. Many people disagree with it. I know in your book you disagree with it. Can we talk about where the trial falls short and where these witnesses fall short? Stuart, can we start with you? Yes. Yeah, so the big thing to understand about the civil trial, and I have enormous respect for the King family, but the civil trial was not what a, a normal civil trial would be. It was not an adversarial process. And you don't have to take my word from it. You can l hear what Mark Lane had to say. He re not long before he died, he told a another researcher, look, that, that trial, and Mark Lane was nothing if not a good attorney, and he was James Earl Ray's attorney at one point. So he certainly had an interest in articulating a conspiracy that did not, you know, did not incriminate Ray. But he said, look, it, you just can't sign on to this trial because it wasn't truly an adversarial process. And the reason why is that the person who was being accused, Lloyd Jowers, who by the admission of, of Ray's attorney, William Pepper, had lied in previous court-type proceedings, right? He was on, again, William Pepper, Ray's attorney in that civil trial's own admission, seeking a major movie deal in the six figures range. The trial itself was only suing Jowers for a dollar. So the net result of this is, is that Jowers stands to make a whole lot more money from quote unquote losing the trial than he does from actually contesting the results. Now, this isn't something that you could just articulate. You know, people go back and forth. You know, James Douglas says, well, I was in the in the in the courtroom and it was a legitimate trial. Well, here's all you need to know, and anyone at home who can uh, find the civil trial online can do this. Go to the civil trial and search for the word objection. Now we're talking procedural objections, things like asked question is asked and answered, badgering the witness, calls for speculation. You will find virtually no examples of this over multiple days. In fact, almost the entire gamut of procedural objections were introduced by a third party who was defending there, who was there to defend the interests of the uh, state police in, of Tennessee. It was not by Jower's defense attorney. Here's a man who's being accused of a murder in a civil trial, wrongful death, and he never raises objections. Now, you say, oh, well, maybe that's par for the course. Well, you could ask any, any attorney, and they'll tell you it's the idea that you would have no procedural objections. I once asked somebody, in fact, I won't name her, who was a huge sort of devotee of this trial and arguing that, see, this proves government conspiracy. She's an attorney. So I asked her, oh, what would you say if I told you there were like two objections the entire trial, procedural objections? She said she would have assumed that the attorney for Jowers was asleep. 
And so this is where you get things in this trial that would make a regular attorney laugh. You would never have, I don't care if the person is sick, the husband of a direct witness or supposedly direct witness testify on that person's behalf. It's hearsay, complete hearsay, but that was allowed by, by Jowers' attorney because Jowers had an interest in getting a guilty verdict so that he could collect a lot more money than he would lose. And so that's where the problem with the trial remains, is that it was the equivalent of what happened with Sirhan Sirhan. It was as if the other attorney had a, was, was in bed with the prosecution. And if I was a defense attorney, and one who was legitimately trying to defend Lloyd Jowers, I would have introduced uh, William Pepper's book into evidence and then highlighted all the times where William Pepper admits that his main witnesses lying, changed their story, required hypnosis. So unfortunately, and I, I feel very badly for the King family, I think they were told to an extent what they and maybe and certainly William Pepper wanted them to hear and not what the truth would have been if it was a legitimate adversarial process. Thanks for that, Stu. Now, I want to jump to the FBI with Larry. Larry, there was an operation going on called Operation Solo. It began in 1958 and it ended 1966. Essentially, folks, it was a program to infiltrate and gather intelligence on the Communist Party of the United States. Uh, although in operation, it had been involved with the Bureau for several years. Now, there were two main brothers involved with this, Morris and Jack Childs. And they fingered a fellow by the name of Stanley Levinson. Remember this name, Levinson, sorry, not Levinson, Levinson, as the communist in charge of the Communist Party secret funds. Now, why this name is important, Stanley Levinson, is because he was a member during the 60s and the late 50s of the inner circle of the civil rights movement with Dr. Martin Luther King. On several occasions, he helped plan strategies. So the FBI, given what we know about Hoover now and his alarming fear that communists, in other words, controlling and trying to pull the strings, a lot of people feel that this was reason enough for the FBI to kill Dr. King. Now, I'd like to look at that, Larry, and I'd also like to look at that tape, that infamous tape, that Coretta Scott received from the FBI. Can we talk about that a little bit? We've only got a few minutes left. Sorry to jump around. Uh, sure. And basically, it's a real sad story because Levinson was a financial advisor to King. There's no doubt about that. He also, there is no doubt that he had communist contacts. Uh, when Dr. King was warned of exactly that, King was very personal felt Levinson was loyal and refused to disassociate from Levinson, which gave Hoover fundamentally the ammunition that he would use for years to obtain wiretaps on King, to essentially persecute King, to continue in investigating him. That was Hoover's real leverage. Uh, the other element of that was not only would not King distance himself from Levinson, uh, King also 
made a number of statements about the FBI not being active in protecting civil rights demonstrators. Uh, Hoover didn't feel that that was a federal charge. The two men basically became huge antagonists because of King's remarks against the FBI, which Hoover considered to be personal in his family. Uh, moving on quickly, um, by the time you get to 1968, a lot of that was quite diminishing. Hoover had waged this war against King. One of his primary senior FBI agents had actually taken a, comp a compilation of tapes, uh, taken segments from them, which suggested that King was involved in illicit sex or somebody in a room was involved in illicit sex and supplied them to King's wife, just another part of Hoover's smear campaign, a campaign essentially to discredit and get King out of the civil rights movement. Didn't work. Uh, the, the strange thing is that by 1968, Hoover was become, had become so repetitive in all this that he was beginning to be ignored. And Stu and I have been through numerous official documents. Uh, Hoover was being rejected in request for new wiretaps. Hoover was still ordering his agents and actually had a very active program underway to come up with ways to undermine the march that King was planning in Washington, D.C. So in, in regard to your question, nothing had really changed. Hoover was in the same place that he'd always been, ordering dirty tricks, anticipating dirty tricks. There's nothing to suggest that his game plan had changed because he was still actively doing that and trying to persuade people in Washington that King was a security threat. However, everybody was beginning to push back against Hoover and just essentially ignore him on the subject. And that's what you see happening. But Hoover still doing things like working with his field offices to make sure that the King demonstration in Washington doesn't get buses. And really stupid, petty things like that. Something entirely different than an assassination effort. Two quick things. Uh, we know that his Poor People's March, Dr. King's Poor People's March, was set to go. What he wanted to do was actually shut down Washington, D.C. So I can imagine people were in the realms of power, were actually terrified of something like this happening because he was so, Dr. King was so adamant about equal pay, about the poor people being able to rise out of the squalor that they were living in. I mean, this is a constant cycle and repetitive, repetitive cycle of uh, poverty uh, right here in the United States, in the United States. And we have some of that in Canada as well, but for different reasons, it's, it's not quite as bad. Now, would this have been a reason for perhaps any of the alphabet agencies to get involved in perhaps leveraging some of their contacts and maybe shifting some money towards some kind of conspiracy to take out Dr. King? Well, I don't to, know. To oh, you go ahead, Larry. I'm sorry. Just my brief answer on that is there's no particular sign of it. What, what there is is there's a sign that Dr. King's march has become part of the whole chaos that's going on in the U.S., and what you find is you find these different agencies from the FBI to military intelligence, which has been launched on a brand new program by Lyndon Johnson for domestic surveillance. 
and uh, preemptive action against marches and, and public uh, demonstrations. You find a lot of that going on, but it's targeted as much to the anti-war protest, anti-war protest, and probably more towards the anti-war protest. Uh, King's activities are nonviolent. That's the point. He's the last holdout for nonviolence. Everybody else is turning towards riots and demonstrations across the nation, and those are the people that are being targeted with Operation Chaos from the CIA, from the FBI. So, yeah, you find lots of signs that the government is reacting, but it's to this broader level of what they consider to be a threat than Dr. King's march, which he's going to do everything in the right. world to keep peaceful. Stu, everybody talks about Johnson's involvement in the Kennedy assassination, JFK. Any chance at all Johnson was involved in the taking out of Dr. King? I think it's highly unlikely, amongst other things, he was basically on his way out of office. By that point in time, he was almost impotent because he had announced that he wasn't going to run again because of what had happened in Vietnam. Um, but the big thing, and I just want to underscore this of what Larry is saying, is if they had any sense of things at all at the time, and I think they did, Killing King would have been one of the last things the national security state would have wanted to do in 1968, because what they were most afraid of and what the national security posture had basically changed to was a fear of some kind of what uh, um, one historian referred to as a domestic Tet offensive. Killing King would have, A, inflamed everybody, and it, and it did, but you could have predicted that, and B, left the, gotten rid of the one person who was left who was urging nonviolence amongst the, the protest movement in America at the time. So you would have been inviting the very thing that you were trying to prevent if, you were, if your goal was to take him out. And that's a big reason why I'm skeptical of that idea in 1968. Fair enough. We've only got a minute left, but I'm going to put you on a spot here, folks, because April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King is gunned down. Two months later, two months later, folks, Bobby Kennedy dies on June the 6th, 1968. Only two months. Well, this year, Tuesday night actually falls on June the 6th. And I'm going to invite Stu and Larry to come back to celebrate Bobby Bobby's life as well as we just did tonight, if, if you'd be willing to. That's why I'm Absolutely. putting you on the spot. Larry, would that be good with you, my friend? That would be good to me and Stu, and I might even mention some of the same names. Yeah. Ah. <laughs> you, may, you may find us saying the same kinds, some of the same things. Uh-oh. <laughs> that scares me to death, because when I see those threads and the arcs and everything, that means conspiracy without question. The book we've been discussing tonight is called... The Awful Grace of God, Religious Terrorism, White Supremacy. Jeez, that just doesn't go away, does it? And the Unsolved Murder of Martin Luther King Jr. Larry Hancock, Stuart Wexler has been have been our guests tonight. Thank you so much, guys. Hi, Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thanks, Brent. See you all later.